Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. The first explosions of an all-out war were heard in the Ukraine shortly before dawn. Russian President Vladimir Putin warned that attempts by countries to interfere would lead to consequences not seen in history. This podcast was recorded shortly before the dramatic developments. Today on the Indo-Daily, why should Ireland be worried about a war that's taking place 3,000 kilometres away? What does it feel like to live in a country on the brink of all-out war? I've shot guns on many occasions and I'm, I'm pretty reasonable at it. And if, if that's what I'm drawn into, I, you know, I, again, this isn't like, I'm not being gung-ho about this, but if that's what I'm drawn into, then, then that's what I'll have to do as well. And why we in Ireland have skin in the game. Ireland is very much of interest to Russia. Dublin is one of the tech capitals of Europe, if not the world. They were probably going to try and expand their infrastructure to help spy on the world's biggest tech behemoths present in Dublin. And, you know, we have an outsized importance uh, relative to our population. The announcement by President Putin yesterday uh, that Russia was recognizing the separatist regions in Ukraine crosses a line. It is a flagrant... With tensions running high for weeks now over potential invasion, Ukraine has declared a state of emergency as Western diplomats flee their embassies. But our advice, of course, to Irish citizens is to leave Ukraine and for, um, uh, for people not to travel to Ukraine. It's going to be increasingly difficult, actually, to get out. US President Joe Biden has warned that an all-out war is now likely. This is the beginning of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Who in the Lord's name does Putin think gives him the right to declare new so-called countries on territory that belong to his neighbours? But Russian leader Vladimir Putin insists the conflict is the result of interference from Western countries and the mistreatment of Russians in eastern Ukraine. Allow me to add that in our assessment, what's happening now in the Donbass constitutes genocide. For now, the EU, US and Britain are fighting tanks with sanctions in the hope that hitting rich Russians in the pocket will force Putin to reverse his attacks. Russia's decision to recognise the Ukrainian regions of Donetsk and Luhansk is illegal and completely unacceptable. We will make it as difficult as possible for the Kremlin to pursue its aggressive actions. (laughs) 
I'm Kevin Doyle and today I'm joined by Irishman Paul Nealon, who is prepared to take up arms in Kiev. John O'Brennan, Jean Minet Chair in European Integration at Minute University, explains how European countries, including Ireland, will be hit in the pockets if they target Russian oligarchs with sanctions. And Sunday Independent Business Editor, Samantha McCochran, explains how the conflict is going to further drive up the cost of living here. Paul Nyland, you're a dub, but you have been in the Ukraine for nearly 20 years. What brought you to Eastern Europe? Uh, it, the simple answer is that I have Ukrainian friends and uh, they'd invited me several times to come to Kiev to, to visit them. And uh, I, I, it got to the point where I was rude for not having accepted their invitation. So uh, I came and I thought maybe I would stay for about six months and 19 years later, I'm still here. It's not a holiday destination that most of us would think of necessarily. So what is life like in Ukraine normally if we take away what's happening at the moment? What, what has your life been like there for the last two decades? You know what? Actually, uh, Ukraine and Kiev in particular is a great holiday destination. It's a it's a wonderful, wonderful place for a, a weekend visit. The architecture here is is uh, simply stunning. I mean, there are there are beautiful buildings, beautiful churches uh, dotted around the city, and and you come across you know marvels of architecture on a, a like a minute by minute basis. Um, but the, the country itself, you know, it, it shares a lot in common uh, with Ireland. The people here are very hospitable. They have a cracking sense of humor as well. Um, and uh, as, as I said, I, I thought I would stay for six months and enjoy it you know, so much that, that I'm, I'm still here. Obviously, the events of recent weeks have brought a, a huge spotlight on the country. But there have been a lot of reports that maybe people there on the ground are not as, for want of a better way of phrasing it, hyped up perhaps as as some of the rest of us in the EU, UK, America about exactly what is going on. So that that's correct. I mean, we're, we're not panicking. Um, we, we continue to get on with our daily lives. If that means, you know, taking, taking the kids to school in the morning or popping to the supermarket to, to pick up groceries, then, then, you know, that's what, that's what we have to continue doing. But yeah, the, 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 the situation at present because of, uh, uh Vladimir Putin's uh, escalation of, of the conflict, the situation is grabbing headlines, but we have actually lived with war, um, and Russian occupation of Ukrainian land for eight years now. The, the war began in 2014 and, and it, it has been a low intensity conflict for a, a large part of that time, but it's never stopped. Are people not worried though that this is different? We, we, we know conflict has kind of been a, a, an undercurrent all the time, but there does seem to be something a lot more sinister about what's happening at the moment. You're exactly right. This is different um, because uh, Russia has taken steps to uh, declare that the, the many uh, you know, uh, entities that were established in the east of Ukraine on parts of the Donetsk and the Lugansk oblasts, um, Russia has decided to declare them as independent. The, the reality of the matter is, is that Russia actually created them. They were not born from local agency. They weren't the people of those regions standing up and, um, and, and demanding uh, independence or, or separatism. And in actual fact, there was no, uh, there is no evidence of any separatist, separatist intent in those regions prior to the spring of, of 2014. It's not like the debate, for example, over Scottish independence that's been going on for decades or, you know, the, the, the situation with Catalonia. 
Um, uh, Again, that's been publicly and, you know, uh, debated from both sides for many, many years. That conversation was just not happening in, in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. But there is this fear that that it's starting there. In some ways, that's the first move on the chessboard. But I mean, Joe Biden in particular has been very clear that he he thinks there is going to be moves towards Kiev. I mean, are, are you you're going to work today? Your life is continuing. The advice from the Irish government has been to get out, like most embassies uh, there have been told to get out. But you're staying, and and life goes on. I'm, I'm staying and life goes on. Actually, there was another email that came from our embassy uh, just this morning. And uh, the advice, yes, is, is being repeated that uh, Irish citizens should leave um, immediately while there's still uh, uh, you know, commercial means to do so. Um, and then the advice went further as well and, and said you should uh, stockpile basic food goods in, in your homes in case you have to shelter in place for a period. And you know, I, I, I see the I see the advice. I, I understand why uh, the embassies, not just the Irish embassy, but uh, embassies of other countries, are, are urging people to um, err on the side of caution. But um, I, I, I and I see the warnings from from Joe Biden about a potential attack on on Kiev as well. The fact is, is that is that the, the, the entire Russian army could not occupy the city of Kiev. Putin could choose to inflict damage here in another way. But the people of this city would, I mean, we've had two revolutions here. The, the, the people of this city are not going to lie down and accept, you know, living under the, the, the barrels of, of Russian guns. Well, what is the, the mood then in terms of that? If there is a, a move made on Kiev or some of the, the bigger cities, in the Ukraine, will there be an uprising of the people themselves? Yes, absolutely, and um, and it, it's it's a perfectly natural reaction as well. You know, if if your home is invaded, then you're you're going to you're going to protect it. You're you're, you're going to defend your territory. You're going to defend your family. And and the other thing as well that uh, Vladimir Putin is seriously miscalculating is the strength of the Ukrainian army that is standing on the current contact line over the last few weeks. Um, they, they've got capacity to inflict significant damage on the invading forces, and they will. And then the people of the, the, the other cities, they will form a civilian resistance to any attempt to occupy any further population centers here. Would you see yourself joining a civilian resistance? Uh, yes. Yes, of course I will. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's not a choice for me. It, it's not. It's not something that that I'm I'm relishing doing. But if I have to be a part of of you know standing up for my home city, then then yes, I'll, I'll be doing that the same way as I stood alongside people on my dam during during the revolutions. We we all have a part to play, and uh, it's it's an individual uh, an individual's choice and respond personal responsibility. What does that look like, Paul? It's hard for us to imagine. I know in this country we have our own history of of these types of things, but like, does that mean taking up arms? What do, what do you think a civil resistance looks like? What what would you see yourself doing if it came to that? So, in in all of the major cities uh, across Ukraine, uh, uh, territorial defense units have been formed. Um, citizens uh, of Ukraine and uh, residents of Ukraine for more than five years are able to uh, to join up and that means then going on uh, training exercises going to a, a military base and, and learning tactics about uh, how to 
uh, how to deal with a, a potential occupation, and that includes firearms training as well. And you know, I can I can shoot. I I, I, I think that the, the the Second Amendment in the United States is crazy, but but I, I actually I've shot guns on many occasions, and I'm I'm pretty reasonable at it. And if if that's what I'm drawn into, I, you know, I, again, this isn't like I'm not being gung ho about this. But if that's what I'm drawn into, then then that's what I'll have to do as well. You you mentioned you took part in the revolutions before. You stood on the lines in the revolutions. Were you involved in in using guns in in that sort of a setting? No, I mean the the, the only time that firearms were used uh, in uh, the the last revolution, the revolution of dignity, was on the twentieth of February when the authorities uh, mowed down uh, a, a large number of the, the protesters. Um, the, the weapons that were used by the people of uh, the revolution um, against the authorities were, were stones and petrol bombs, and I, I didn't throw either of them. But I, I watched the I watched the paving stones being broken up. I watched the human chains passing them along. I, I watched groups of young men throwing those stones over burning uh, military trucks that were blocking access to the the, the parliament uh, building. Um, and and I, I was a witness to those events, and um, I, I'm, I'm proud to have stood next to the Ukrainian people while they were doing that. They were standing for, for for their freedom, and they were standing against corruption, and they were standing for a fairer Ukraine. What do your friends and family at home here in Ireland think when they hear you talk with that? I, I can sense the spirit that you have and the connection with the Ukrainian people. I guess that's you see Ukraine as your home now. But what do you, what do your friends and family? back here think when they, they hear you talking about this? So I was actually speaking with, with relatives just yesterday and um, they they didn't try to persuade me to leave because because they know that, I, that I'm not going to leave. And uh, a friend in Manchester actually called me last week and said, I know you're going to say no, but I want you to know there's always a place for you here. If you want to get out and you can come here, I know you're going to say no. And I mean, yeah, it's natural that, that people are concerned and, and you know, my concern, my concern is for the millions of people who live in what is currently the the, the government-controlled parts of the Donbass, um, and and what their fate is should the the Russian uh, military move further forward and attempt to uh, oc- occupy more Ukrainian towns and cities. That, that I, I fear for those people in the east. John O'Brennan. Joe Biden used the phrase all-out war earlier this week. What does an all-out war look like in a modern era? Because when we read the history books and we read about World War One, World War II, we think of blitzes, we, we think of tanks rolling in. It seems quite different um, in the way we operate, I suppose, in 2022. I think one of the problems, Kevin, is that there is very little memory within our society of what a major war actually looks like. Most of the people who fought in World War II are dead. And where we read about and watch wars going on in distant places in the Middle East and elsewhere, um, it has a sort of surreal quality to it. I suspect that we are not going to reach that point in Ukraine. But what would it look like? Obviously, it would involve the use of major air power by the Russians in particular. This is an asymmetrical conflict, certainly in the sense of equipment that the Russians vastly um, have outspend the Ukrainian military and have that firepower that they need probably to overwhelm 
Ukraine pretty quickly. But here's where you could make an analogy with what happened in Iraq. That was the case, obviously, for the United States as well. You may remember George W. Bush declaring victory after only a period of months in Iraq. And that's when the real fighting began. Because I suspect that there might be ways in which this would look like a conventional conflict. Ukraine, after all, has a military of about 300,000 soldiers. Um, But I suspect it's the insurgency that would develop akin to what happened in Iraq uh, after 2003. That's what it would look like. So it would look more like irregular warfare than some all-out conflict characterized by war at air, sea and land. Tell me this, John, why, why in, you mentioned Iraq there, we know Syria, obviously, long running war as well. Why are we referring to this, or at least a lot of commentators are referring to this as potentially World War Three? but we never use that sort of language when we talk about Iraq or Syria or Afghanistan indeed? Well, I think because there is obviously a clash here that goes beyond Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and that is the relationship between Russia and the Western alliance, between Russia and NATO. It's also the fact that uh, one of Russia's chief complaints uh, is that the expansion of NATO over the last 25 years or so has brought what they regard as an aggressive security rival right up to the borders of Russia. If you think about the Baltic states, for example. For the moment, those NATO countries and, you know, the EU, um, US, UK particularly, they seem to be fighting the tanks that we see rolling across the border with sanctions. Is that really going to deter someone like Vladimir Putin, the, the I suppose, trying to impose the economic um, imposition on him because we've seen him in those videos walking through the Grand Palace and, and uh, in, clearly living in the lap of luxury. Do, will the fact that perhaps those sanctions might hit the people, will that matter to him? Will it influence his thinking at all? Well, we may take our advice from the Russian ambassador to Sweden who was asked this question a couple of weeks ago and said, Basically, Putin doesn't give a damn about sanctions. I think if you look back at the evidence to 2014, when sanctions were imposed after the incursion into Crimea, it's very obvious now that those sanctions had no impact at all. There's still a great timidity about the use of sanctions. Uh, We saw the British government, for example, almost pretend that they were doing something serious, but they were actually just sanctioning uh, banks that had already been sanctioned by the United States, five smaller banks um, uh, and a number of diplomats. The US sanctions, I think, uh, signaled yesterday are of a more serious kind. So are those of the European Union, and there has been much better coordination. I think what they're trying to do is to lay it out to Putin that there's a chain of escalation in in respect to financial sanctions, and that if he goes further, then the EU and the United States and the United Kingdom have this capacity to up the ante and impose sanctions that would really draw much closer to the Kremlin to banks that uh, the Kremlin does most of its business through, for example, or huge Russian corporations like Gazprom and Rosneft, which have a presence all over Europe. Uh, Potentially, those um, kind of entities might be sanctioned, but that draws attention, I think, to the problem that exists in EU countries and in the UK, which is that we literally invited 
Russian oligarchs into our countries to launder their money, to buy up property, send their families to school and so on. And the presence that they have here now is very significant. And if you're going to impose financial sanctions and expansive sanctions, then you're going to be hurting your own interests to some degree. And finally, where does Ireland fit into all of this, John? Obviously, we're small fry, let's be honest, but there is our seat on the UN Security Council, which obviously is chaired, ironically, by Russia at the moment. Um, Then there is the question of our place in the EU, which seems pretty steadfast. We're behind all of that. That's quite clear from from the government, um, our backing the EU approach. But then there's also the question of our neutrality. um, Or does that even come into it? Well, I think it's not quite true to say that Ireland doesn't matter for Russia. Uh, you may recall a couple of years ago, the Russian embassy in Dublin put in very ambitious plans to expand its embassy. And you know, there were all kinds of question marks asked. Planning permission was uh, not um, um, awarded to them in the end. But I think it was very clear that what they were trying to do, acknowledging that Dublin is one of the tech capitals of Europe, if not the world, they were probably going to try and expand their infrastructure to help spy on the world's biggest tech behemoths present in Dublin. Um, So in that sense, the fact that Ireland is really at the center of the global technological economy, Ireland is very much of interest to Russia. And, you know, we have an outsized importance uh, relative to our population. Every indication we have suggests that we'll be aligning very closely with our allies in the European Union. Um, I think as far as government is concerned, there's no contradiction between maintaining neutrality and, for example, pursuing financial sanctions. It does beg an obvious question about the hypocrisy of our position. You know, we have um, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia who supported us all the way through the Brexit process, unflinching support. And Tomorrow morning, if they were to be attacked by Russia, would we really seriously opt out? Would we really say, we'll give you support uh, up to everything but uh, military support? I think in that kind of context, the hypocrisy of our position would be exposed. Samantha McCochran, how much does Ireland rely on Russia for energy and gas? So Ireland... Uh, doesn't directly get any uh, gas uh, from Russia, but it's a, you know the gas and oil world is an international playing field. So while we don't get it directly, a huge amount of our energy would come via um, Russian sources of energy. So about forty percent of Europe's gas um, comes from Russia, and about twenty twenty-five percent of the world's oil actually comes from Russia. So while we won't, uh, we don't directly source it, we will be caught up in any issues with their gas supplies because it just is going to tighten the availability of oil and gas, therefore pushing up our energy prices inevitably. It seems a little self-centred in some ways to be even talking about this when there are people in Eastern Europe facing a war. But the reality is the cost of living is already the big political hot topic here now post-COVID. When do you think Irish households might start to feel the effects of possible energy price rises uh, on the back of what's happening? Well, it, the way the um, the gas market works is some of the contracts are you know, bought well in advance. So it's about six months before they probably will really hit the pockets of Irish uh, consumers. But the whole 
atmosphere, the whole sensitivity and concern about inflation is also playing into this panic that's kind of taking a grip of of, of the of, of political mar- the political world, markets, stock markets. So it's, it mightn't actually hit us for several months, but the fear of it will be there and the knowledge that an inflationary uh, impact is just waiting there will also uh, just feed into that and a concern about inflation and interest rates that, that, that's heat, heating up at the moment. So we might escape it for what's left of this winter, but it sounds like as we head into next winter, uh, people will be worrying about their their energy bills again. Can I ask you, Samantha, about wheat? Um, A huge amount of Europe's wheat comes from the Ukraine and Russia. Is that likely to have an impact on us here and food supplies? It is going to have an impact on us. Because uh, grain and feed for animals uh, would be hugely reliant on the wheat that's produced from Russia. So that, that would feed into the whole, um, excuse the pun, but it feeds into the whole system of cost basis for farmers. Then, you know, what the customer at the end of the day. And it, again, like just like the wheat, the electricity, the gas, that all feeds into all the consumer goods that we buy. So, um, you know, you're talking obviously about flour. That's hugely important to us for lots of lots of uh, things that we buy every day that then you know meat that's going to be impacted by the the cost of wheat and then the the gas and the uh, oil that's going to feed into lots of things that we buy all the time so it's not just as simple as okay i'm going to have a bigger gas bill it could feed into so much of the uh, the items that we kind of consume on a regular basis and don't think about too much and just, Samantha, then on the other side of things, we know that the EU has brought in a number of sanctions and they particularly seem to be targeting Russian money and Russian financing. Will that have an impact on the IFSC? We we know we have a lot of big investors here, but are there many Russians who are funneling money through Ireland? There is some activity from uh, Russian uh, oligarchs. There is some evidence uh, reported by uh, research by Trinity College um, a few years ago, and basically they were saying about 180 billion was funneled through the IFSC between 2005 and 2017. So quite a substantial amount of money. And basically, there's perfectly legal mechanisms which allow people avoid paying taxes. And Ireland is a small cog in an international uh, finance wheel. So London would be a huge centre for, um, you know, those type of kind of complex financial transactions. But Ireland certainly has a role to play. Um, uh, Minister Simon Covey said that the the sanctions already have made sure that the flow of Russian money um, in the IFSC will be targeted. But these are really quite preliminary steps in the sanctions. And there are certainly much more uh, challenging and difficult sanctions that could be uh, implemented. One is called Swift Note, where basically it allows all sorts of international transactions. And that's the type of thing that if, if those sanctions were introduced, they would really hit Russia quite hard. I'm Kevin Doyle and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Neve Dunn, recorded by Gavin Hennessy, with sound design by John Smith. If you enjoy the Indo-Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.